think about the way we all forward deploy our engineers now. My engineers work in the heart of the tech community in Pittsburgh. So they're not getting on site with clients five days a week or four days a week, but they are one or two days a week because we all know that if you don't get close to the users and as an engineer, developer, machine learning engineer, data scientist, you don't understand why you're building what you're building, your product's never gonna be as good as the companies who do give that exposure. This is All Quiet on the Second Front, podcast where boring conversations around defense tech and national security come to die. Join me, Tyler Sweat, and my Second Front comrades as we dismantle the mundane, cut through the bureaucratic BS to demystify the world of defense tech. But be warned, this is not a typical government podcast. Ready to get weird? This is a Soul Fire production. All right, what's up, everybody? I'm your host, Tyler Sweat. Welcome to another episode of All Quiet on the Second Front, the podcast where boring defense talk comes to die. We're going to get into the riveting topic of defense acquisition today, but we're going to make it fun. And in order to do that, I couldn't think of anybody better to ask to come over than uh, Tara from Govini. So Tara, one, thank you for taking some time to come over. And two, want to let you sort of open up and I've had the great pleasure of getting to know you and follow your work, but I want to make sure everybody sort of knows who are you? Sort of how, what's your background kind of look like and what are you working on now? Awesome. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Tyler. I've been following this podcast for a while and very excited to join. So thanks for having me. And yeah, I'm CEO at Gavini, which is one of the most exciting defense tech companies that's out there right now. We're a defense software company focused specifically on, you got it, the defense acquisition space. But I think we'll dive into more of that later. I came to Gavini after a number of years at Palantir. I was there during a super interesting phase of the company, which was like three phases of the company, because that's the way it goes in in, uh, rocket ships like that, and really loved my experience. I was at first a total fish out of water, though, because I had spent the first decade of my career in defense policy, (laughs) which is a non-standard Palantir hire, at least back in 2014 it was to be sure. So I spent about half of that decade in the Office of the Secretary of Defense for policy. And prior to that was at CSIS working on nuclear weapons issues. Awesome. When you look at the intersection of policy and technology, and you then apply that into acquisition, right? I think you, I mean, you can't throw a stone in defense or defense tech without folks talking about the valley of death and sort of how challenging it is to understand and navigate sort of the morass that is that is defense acquisition. I guess the first question is, as you look out at it, what do you think the, the problem is? And then what are ways folks should be thinking about approaching that? And I guess the, the overall one is, do you think we're looking at it the right way or the wrong way right now? Yeah, well, super thoughtful question with so much wrapped in into it. So maybe I'll just start at the very end, which is, I think people are missing half the picture, at least half the picture. So the vast majority of the debate, as you mentioned, around defense acquisition and all of the challenges that are associated with it, of which there are many, are really policy debates. They're about whether the department has the right authorities from Congress. They're about whether 
the, you know, the PPBE process is operating properly, um, which is really a, a policy driven process and standards. And it's about whether the department is thinking about these things from the right perspective and has the right culture in the institutions, et cetera, et cetera. None of which is wrong. And certainly we need a lot of things to change in all of those regards. Well, I take that back. I actually think DOD has all the authorities it needs. <laughs> I often say that the FAR is... I agree. Yeah. <laughs> People talk about, you know, oh, well, we need acquisition reform or we don't need acquisition reform, but we need more change and say things like, I want to burn the FAR to the ground or we've got to start over. I love the FAR. It's like a choose your own adventure. We, you remember those books? Oh, yeah. People oh, need yeah. to treat it that way instead of treating it like it's the Baltimore Catechism. And then you can get everything done that you need to get done. So that's the piece that people are talking about and I think are focused on correctly. The piece that they're incredibly missing is there's a really mundane, unglamorous, but wildly important aspect to making acquisition work better for the warfighter which is just the day-to-day workflows that people in the acquisition workforce execute and the capabilities they have been given or not been given to execute those day-to-day workflows. That's the process improvement piece that the private sector has revolutionized over the past 20 years while DOD still runs on email, data calls, and spreadsheets. Yeah, it's interesting to talk about sort of the, the how Instead of, you know, the what or the who, because I think you're right. I think the policies and the authorities sort of all exist. And I think the the acquisition and sort of procurement communities always are the ones getting spears thrown at them for how they issue an RFP or how they're assessing or how they're engaging with. Um, to your point, I think sometimes they're they're given a raven, you know, like the bird to send messages to each other, not even the crappy drone. And <laughs> We're under-resourcing them in a lot of ways and asking them to scale their impact and increase sort of the volume and velocity with which they can prosecute their mission without thinking about what are the, you know, whether it's the technical tooling, the process, or just the governance layer from like a data and observability and how to make that sort of a, a more, a more modular, more modernized sort of capability. Um, as you look at that, sort of where do you start? Because just even explaining it that way, it becomes sort of like a 500-pound gorilla, right? It's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. And I think that's so important because it's part of the reason that even though DOD isn't taking the initiative to bring in modern workflow software for this community, the commercial sector hasn't pushed it either, which is really interesting. You know, the reason that we've got these really exciting new defense tech companies competing for the next big unmanned X is because the commercial sector is pushing their way in. But we haven't seen that happen with this very, like I said, sort of mundane and um, more importantly, really esoteric and hard to get to and understand space and community. And I think that's the key because DOD keeps adding more people into the program office staffs. 
basically. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the program executive offices, the program offices, the sustainment centers, the materiel commands, the lifecycle management centers, all of these communities that are responsible for conceiving of, I would include the labs and some of the requirements community there, actually fielding and producing the capabilities. And then really importantly, because it's 70% of the weapons system's lifetime costs, sustaining them. So out of all of those people, where are the modern, you know, defense tech software companies coming in and saying, we know what you're trying to achieve and we have cutting edge, best in class software to help you do it. Until Davini, nobody was doing that. And part of the reason is because these users are hard to get to. DOD isn't asking for the help in this area, to your point. And they do work that's really complex and hard to understand unless you kind of know the defense space already. So flipping that around, I think you, anyone who's talked to a contracting officer, I think recognizes that there's usually a couple different forces at play, right? To your, to your earlier point about sort of the FAR, I think there has been sort of generations of, you know, what I used to call the military, a barracks lawyer, where someone had said, no, you're not allowed to do this. And then that got passed on in this like game of generational telephone. So their perception of what they're actually allowed to do gets infinitely smaller. And then on the other side, there's this like big, oh, I'm going to go to jail for this. I'm going to go to jail for this. So there's this also kind of like institutional fear, I think, of pushing or a perception of institutional fear. And then you've got sort of some like mavericks floating around to, to your point are like, hey, yeah, like, or let's me do all of this stuff. It's freaking great. How do you think about the sort of behavioral change or the cultural change at that user level as you're going in? Because that to me is like the generational, that's the lift you get where like you just advance national security 10x. Absolutely. And the people who are willing to be creative are truly mavericks. So I think the key to getting mass adoption or turning them all into uh, people who love to, to use all the full authorities and, and options the FAR provides is about better sharing information. You know, a lot of times, I think the mission owners in the department forget that their contracting officer is meant to be a business advisor to them. You know, Tara, the mission owner, is supposed to go to Tyler, the, the contracting officer, and say, here's what I'm trying to achieve. What's the right strategy from an acquisition perspective for me to get there? And then you to be empowered to actually give me meaningful advice and options. That's a good point. And that's not really how it happens today. No, not usually. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's Tara, the mission owner, shoves this down the contracting officer's throat and says it's the fastest way to get it done, or I have to go use this company, figure out how. And they turn into box checkers. Well, when you turn them into box checkers, you kind of demotivate them. And you don't incentivize them to get creative and take a little risk and focus on, we got to make the mission happen, you know? And so let's, like I said, get creative. So I think we need to really, really make better information available across that workforce and train them up to be business advisors. Yeah. So that's one. I mean, I agree that that's not happening. There are pockets and it's the pockets you'd think, right? Yeah. It's the those type of cultures. 
So I'll flip that question back around then and say, okay, if we're looking to make sort of that contracting officer, that procurement shop, that, that sort of business advisor, what's your message then to the mission owner who, you know, for the last decade has been like, whatever, contract nerd, you know, go get me my <laughs> widget, figure it out. And they're just like shrieking at the wind. What is that sort of engagement? Because I would imagine, right, in order for in order for an organization to be able to drive sort of that technology change and change the way end users are engaging and sharing information, there's the relationship between the mission user and the contracting officer. And then there's also like a philosophical transformation from like a sort of industrial age down and in, I control all data, thus I have power into a knowledge age, I share and disseminate information and the power is actually the collective that, you know, historically the government's not been super great at sharing information. (laughs) So put it mildly. What does that look like? Yeah, you guys end up in like a really unique spot at an intersection of a lot of these sort of, you know, generational change forces and you know, technical challenges inside a, a pretty critical mission. Absolutely. Yes. Well, the best way to get those mission owners to, I think, maybe come at it from a different perspective would be to walk a mile in the shoes of the people who are performing the acquisition tasks. And that's easier said than done. But to be honest, if you look at, just look at another area of the intersection of defense and tech where the department's gotten really creative on on job training and job opportunities. Remember way back when when uh, Defense Digital Service was was running around the Pentagon in their hoodies for the first time saying like, please, you have to bring engineers into this organization. Well, over the subsequent years, DOD got really good at using all sorts of creative hiring mechanisms and making different kinds of exceptions to be able to hire at higher salaries than the traditional GS scale to create rotations in and out of you know, public sector and private sector, all sorts of creative things. Yeah. Why, if defense acquisition is in such a point of crisis and we know that the acquisition workforce, I should say the contracting workforce, has been kind of gutted of talent, why don't we use those same mechanisms to build up our acquisition team, our contracting teams? Why aren't we bringing in people who are going to take a year off of their finance job to teach them how to to put in place a multi-billion dollar contract for the next major capability that drives United States national interests. I mean, that's a pretty compelling offer, especially if you only have to do it for two years. Yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting way to look at it. I know I had a bunch of conversations with contracting officers. I'm like, hey, you know, what does what does an organizational engagement make or how does different organizational engagement make you feel either more valued or meaningfully connected to, to the mission? And to your point about sort of like walk a mile in their shoes, resoundingly, I was told, Hey, you know, contracting like acquisition shops don't get travel funds. Like none of our folks can go to conferences. They're not seeing what this mission owner is seeing on a floor somewhere or at a panel at South, they're not seeing any of that. So the expectation for them to have 
sort of shared situational awareness, like the nuanced understanding with context is challenging, right? Like, and also to have empathy. Yeah. So to your point about like walk a mile in each other's shoes, it's that sort of how do we build an empathy? And then how do we create like convening capabilities that are bringing together the market, the mission and the buyer all in sort of one roof? I know there's organizations sort of trying to do that. And there's probably, you are a case in point, way smarter people than me working on how to do that from a tech standpoint. But I think it's that, that the sort of humanity in all of this and how do we use tech to make sure that we're sort of aligning and bringing those together. I think it's also going to require strong departmental leadership. Absolutely. I mean, a really good analog based on the way that you just perfectly described it would be to think about the way we all forward deploy our engineers now. My engineers work in the heart of the tech community in Pittsburgh. So they're not getting on site with clients five days a week or four days a week, but they are one or two days a week because we all know that if you don't get close to the users and as an engineer, developer, machine learning engineer, data scientist, you don't understand why you're building what you're building, your product's never going to be as good as the yep. companies who, who do yep. give that exposure. And you're talking about the exact same dynamic. How do you give that acquisition community the exposure to the mission, develop the empathy and understand what the actual intent is? And then you can develop a real acquisition strategy. Yeah, I love that. And then here's potentially a, a tricky question, but I got to ask it. You know, as we look at the department, and I know we're turning the corner into an election year, so at some point in the next 24, we'll see some different leadership. Um, as you look at unnamed folks that are sort of seniors on top of, you know, the acquisition function, are you optimistic with the, the sort of caliber and the experience we're putting in there as an ability to, to maybe drive transformational change, or are we... Are we sort of closing the book before we even start to write it by maybe putting folks who are more, how do we keep things as they are and preserve? I'm trying to ask it not in a pokey way, but like, do, yeah. you, do you even think we're, do you even think we're taking this seriously at senior levels? Um, I'll say something contrarian, which is good on the deputy secretary for announcing replicator. <laughs> and the reason it's contrarian is because I'm in agreement with everybody that uh, if you now ask me to explain what replicator is, I got nothing. And neither does anybody else. Chad, Chad C3. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> if DOD could build vaporware, it would be called replicator. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the department's going to have to figure that out. But my understanding and at least read of essentially somewhat what happened is that the deputy said, well, enough is enough. If you don't make progress fast enough, I'm just going to force the progress by getting out in front, saying that this is happening. And guess what happens in the bureaucracy? I know this. I worked in the five-sided building. The bureaucracy has to follow it up. You know, you don't come out later and say, well, no, we didn't really think it all the way through, or I'm sorry, it wasn't actually fully coordinated. The deputy says we're doing this. They're going to go figure out yeah, what this where is. Go. Yeah, this is happening. Yes. Yeah. And I love that leadership. I love that. And so I do see some signs of hope 
in terms of making leaps of progress periodically. It isn't always maybe a graceful leap. Yeah. Change never is though. Yeah. Yeah. Really. We run startups. Yeah. <laughs> we know that's true. Yeah. It can still be exciting and it can be progress. And and so what it will end up being, I'm not sure. And the devil is always in the details. But I think there are a few highlights like that. I'll give you a second one that's maybe more actionable. If we ever get an appropriation, a big plus up to DIU's budget would go a long way, I think, in scaling some of the initial leaps of progress we've had as well. Yeah, I think uh, I think a lot of us were optimistic seeing the the hack D mark and sort of what that looked like. Less optimistic when we saw the sack D, but <laughs> hey, hey, that's showbiz. <laughs> I think it sets though, and it starts a good conversation. And you know, you and I have talked about this. I think, given the current sort of geopolitical complexity, I think we're starting to see a little bit more alignment than I think I've probably ever seen between authorizers and appropriators on both sides when it comes into defense and national security and technology. The question to your point is going to be: Can we actually ever get to an appropriation? So, two questions. Last two questions. On that, so as you're looking out, what would you tell the next Secretary of Defense or the next ANS or RNA? If somebody came to you and said, Tara, hey, I just got asked to take this job. Like, here's what I'm thinking about. What's the advice you give them on sort of how to think about this? Yes. Oh my gosh. I would tell them number one, your teams keep telling you that things can't be done or they will take really long time to do because they don't have the data in front of them. Guess what? We already have the data. The data is there. Stop using data as an excuse to go slower. I'll give you a specific example. Another OSD initiative came to ANS to basically provide complete supply chain visibility into the 100 largest MDAPs. And basically, ANS said, whoa, 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 it would take us more than a year to do that. And they start piecing together data call after data call to go out to these major defense acquisition programs. That's ridiculous. I could do that right now. I could demo for you, Tyler, what those supply chains look like. The department has to realize you can't hide behind the fact that if the data doesn't sit on your hard drive, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And two, it just has to get more comfortable with adopting commercial technology and realize that there are a lot of commercial capabilities that are actually now defense focused. And I think a lot of the current leadership, that wasn't true when they were coming up in their careers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And so they, they take these answers from the teams of status quo and think that that's okay. And it comes from a place of, of just not knowing what is in the realm of possible. So I would tell them, number one, status quo is out, data is in. And number two, you need to go first and foremost to commercial. I love the line, stop using data as an excuse or a crush to go slow. I think that's, that's going to live with me. I'm going to steal that one. That is a tremendous <laughs> way to put that. All right, last question. We talked about a ton in here. I think a bunch more complexity Hat tip to you for making it very, very consumable and not seem complex. So if you were, you know, had a magic wand, queen for a day, could sort of wave, make one change, that change sticks. So you don't have to caveat, like none of that, like 
You make something happen, it happens, it happens the way you want it to. What's the one thing you change and why? How controversial do you want me to be? This is a safe space. Get spicy with it. I would shut down every FFRDC that competes with commercial companies. Instead of turning a blind eye toward the fact that that happens every single day, even though it's against the law and not within their mission space. I don't think people like to talk about it in our industry, but I don't think you can find anybody who would tell you it doesn't happen. Yeah. I think that, uh, to your point, that sort of furthers the the sort of biocommercial and also creates, I think, clear lines of the roles, the functions, the when you go to where, and it doesn't create maybe some odd incentives around collaboration or some, uh, some insulated market dynamics. Exactly. There's a really important mission that they have. Stick to it. Yep. <laughs> I love that. Well, look, I think, uh, I think you and I could definitely do this for about five more hours because there's a hundred places to go, but I want to thank you one for taking some time because you're running a freaking company. The company is awesome. So I know you've got no time. So super grateful you spent some of it with us. And two, I think, uh, you've heard me, I use the Mark Twain rule all the time, right? Like, sorry, it's so long. I wish I had more time. Your ability to articulate very complicated things in a very sort of plain English and consumable manner is something you do not see a lot of. Uh, This was an awesomely accessible conversation on a really complex topic. So thank you for that as well. This has been a freaking blast, buddy. Thank you so much. I had so much fun here. Heck yeah. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. All right, what's up, everyone? This is Saved Rounds. Join me and my favorite technologist and second front compatriot, Enrique Odi, as we cut through the cacophony of the news cycle and reload your arsenal to annihilate boring defense tech takes. Let the fun begin. All right, what's going on, brother? Hey, good to see you again. Talking a little bit about, uh, about I think, your favorite region, little Indo-PACOM today. We've seen a couple different reports come out talking about the rising sort of threat from a cybersecurity standpoint coming from some of our near peer adversaries over there and the implications for both, you know, Indo-PACOM as a, as an operating command. And I think probably more importantly, some of the realities of what operating in, in, uh, in the region, in the AOR is going to look like. I'll open it sort of broadly, like. How should people be thinking about one, sort of the overall state of the operational environment, and then B, what are the implications for sort of capability development, capability delivery, capability consumption, and how should folks be thinking about that, which I think is the, the more important part here? Yeah, so I'm so old school. I remember it was called Paycom, so I still call it that every once in a while. Yep. Um, look, you know, we got an article here saying, you talk about leaders talk about the emerging threat in cyber. Look, the threat in cyber in the Pacific AOR has been there. It has been there for years and it is persistent and it is powerful. Now, the question is what actually happens in warfare? And so I think when we start looking at this, yes, there's stuff that needs to be done better. We need a harder on assistance better. We have to work more with the industry, work more with allies. This is the kind of standard talk points we always have. I think what we still continue to overlook time and time again in our planning is how we fight through a cyber conflict. How do we fight when we know we're going to be disconnected from potentially civilian infrastructure for for energy or or connectivity? How do we fight when the EW is jammed? How do we fight when we lose access to email? Let's be honest, like if we lost email in the Pacific, 
Could we organize and fight a major conflict? And so I think that's the part we keep talking about this defensive side, like, oh my gosh, look at all those emerging threats. I do not think we've done enough for resiliency and accepting the fact that we are going to lose half of our stuff. We're, we're not, we're going to lose connectivity. How do we fight through that? I think that's where the focus needs to be. And again, it's good to see people talking about it. It's good that we still recognize with all the stuff going on in the world in the Middle East and, and Europe, we still recognize the, the issues in the Pacific. So it's, uh, it's a good starting point. How do you, and this might be an unanswerable question, how do you take a generation of leaders, so the folks that are either emerging right now as your, your brigade, your division, your sort of task force commanders, who maybe spent the last 20, 25 years fighting in a purely uncontested spectrum environment and then get them to sort of make that mental model and effectively say, hey, everything you learned, I need you to unlearn and relearn in a different sort of model or capacity. Like, what does that look like? If you were sitting there, how should folks be thinking about the, the sort of mental model change that needs to occur? Well, I think there, I think there's differences here. Like, if you look at the Navy, I think the Navy doesn't really have that shift to make. The Navy has done, a, for good or bad, you rise to the seventh fleet, pack fleet, Indo-PACOM chain of command. You know, you do your career out in the, in the Pacific. I think the Army and the Air Force, you definitely have a lot more of the legacy and the Marines, a lot more of the legacy of the coin counterterrorism, uh, counterinsurgency war fight. So I think the way you change the mental model is we're going to have to take lessons learned from Ukraine. The, Ukraine is probably the only country right now that has actually fought a high-end cyber EW war fight in the recent past. And the question is, how much time have we spent with our leaders talking with their, not their leaders, but with their troops on the ground, talking through what it was like to actually fight through the EW spectrum? What's it like to fight when your phones and your comms are being jammed constantly? That's how we're going to learn. But again, at the end of the day, experience is what matters. And until you actually get in the fight, you're really not going to know how to react. Thanks for listening. Wouldn't be a podcast without some show notes. So check them out to learn more about Second Front and what we're up to. Stay weird. Stay weird.